welcome everyone. Thank you so very much for joining me again today for another episode of Talking Cloud. Now, you know, this is where we talk about cloud, all things cloud, no holds barred. We're going to talk about whatever matters about cloud and obviously the expert that I have joining me because you all know I'm no expert, but I know where to find them. And I've got a great one today. And this is a hot topic. I'm really, really looking forward to this discussion. Who I have joining me, I've known for many years. He's, uh, you know, definitely have proven in the industry, the security industry, and now the cloud. And in particular, we're going to be talking about Kubernetes. And so I'm super excited, thrilled to introduce to you Neil Gahani. Neil, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Grant. It was a pleasure to be with you. I want you to tell our audiences who you are, what you've been up to, and what you're doing now, and what we're going to talk about. I've been in this Kubernetes ecosystem for almost uh, four years now. Wow. Uh, I've worked at a bunch of startups. Um, I had my own startup uh, as well. Got it. Wow, that's exciting. That What a topical space. Uh, Kubernetes, containers, cloud, I mean, all it's pretty hot right now. So let's just kind of dive in. And for those that may be not as educated as you, and certainly that might include me, can you take a second and kind of maybe position and articulate what is Kubernetes? So Kubernetes was born out of uh, Google. It uh, It's what runs in Google. It was it was called Borg uh, in, in Google several years ago. They open sourced it. So basically, Kubernetes is a way, it's an orchestration engine. It schedules containers. Containers are what, you know, if you've heard about Docker, you know, no uh, Docker containers. And Kubernetes is a way to actually schedule those containers to run on compute uh, nodes. Uh, and these things now, like Kubernetes becomes the abstraction layer, the perfect abstraction layer that you can run on any cloud. So it can run on AWS. And then there's a service that AWS offers called EKS. Uh, it runs on Google as another service called GKE. Uh, Azure runs it as AKS. And then, of course, many other cloud providers. So basically, it's a nice, perfect abstraction layer mm -hmm. um, uh, across and, and allows you to give, run containers across many clouds in a multi-cloud or hybrid cloud environment, including on-prem. And I, I think I get this, but that's important why it's a way to unify uh, across these disparate cloud environments isn't it yeah so one is that obviously if, if the companies that are building modern software and and if you're any kind of company that wants to develop software in a modern way think like uh, amazon just calls them two pizza teams uh, then you want the software development teams to be able to own uh, everything into production so you build them as microservices those microservices have to be packaged up into something, and that packaging is, is a container. And then, of course, you have to get this container to run somewhere, and that running somewhere is orchestrated by Kubernetes, and that allows companies and individual teams to be able to decide that I can run this anywhere or everywhere. Uh, and that, that's, that's the beauty about having this uh, Kubernetes uh, abstraction layer to deploy your software and run it. The title that I have in one of my presentations is Protecting You From You in the World of Software Defined Everything. Because it seems like that's where we are. It's this add water and shake and, and boom, you're there. Yeah, it's it's a it's an exciting time. It's still very very early in this ecosystem. We're pretty uh, pretty early in the in the whole process, so it's a long uh, growth ahead of us. 
like KubeCon basically uh, doubled year over year. It's all, you know, up to 10,000 or 12,000 attendees this past year, this past KubeCon. And that is becoming more and more popular. It's becoming the de facto way that people will deploy their modern software. And that's uh, that's exciting time to be in. Of course, you know, when you start to deploy the software, then the whole world on how you monitor them, how do you make sure things are working or not working, how do you can troubleshoot them, all of that changes. All those old tools don't really apply anymore in this cloud-native world. You know, you hit on something. I just spoke at a, an event in Atlanta earlier this week, and one of the things that I talk about that people are just not prepared for is this whole ephemeral nature of the cloud and things that for years you and I recall keying on as instrumental for threat hunting for for really doing any kind of uh, forensics or auditing or troubleshooting and that was an IP address right mm -hmm. and that dynamics changed somewhat in the cloud yeah it's, yeah containers are very very short lived they can live less than 10 seconds they start they run something they die uh, the IP addresses changes all the time so, yeah, those those things are not static anymore. They're extremely dynamic. Uh, the other thing also is that unlike, you know, the old things where you had to provision your infrastructure and run something uh, in the Kubernetes or cloud native world, in the cloud world in particular, those resources, those nodes that connect to a Kubernetes cluster are provisioned dynamically. So they basically can be provisioned on demand uh, and then they can go away as well. So not only is your workload or your container running in a pod in Kubernetes dynamic that it can start, run, die, but also the nodes or the, the machines that they run on are dynamic. So the assumption in, in the software development world right now is that your software or your service has to be extremely resilient. You have to assume that the disk is going to go away. You have to assume that the node is going to go away. You have to assume that the other service you're talking to is going to go away. And how you're going to deal with that uh, it becomes very important. And that seems to me so counterintuitive to what we've learned in the past. There's so much to unlearn to really maximize and, and, and make full use of this new environment. I mean, is that an accurate statement? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's just new new ways to do things. A lot of people are still stuck doing it the old way, and, and the old ways don't, don't work anymore. You can't be very productive if you're doing monolithic applications because now you're dependent on other teams or you're dependent on this the same old way of doing things. The whole, whole reason people want to move to microservice architecture is because uh, software development teams and individual developers can have independence. So they can build their own thing and they basically, you know, build it in a way that they can talk to a different service via an API and it's called a contract. And you can, you know, there's a, there's a guy, Martin Fowler, I think, that wrote, uh, that writes a nice big article about how microservices architectures actually work and, and, and why they're important. The reason is that the smaller the piece of code that you build, the better it is, the more distinct it only does one function. And the reason that's valuable is because you want to ship this thing as, as fast as possible. The faster you ship things, the faster you can generate the value. It's kind of applying the financial model of time, value, of money principle mm -hmm. uh, to this. So the more frequent the deployment, the, the faster you can uh, abstract the value from it. And the way to do that, because now you're taking these big monolith used to be a huge piece of software, and you may break it down into a thousand little pieces. Yep. But scheduling that on, on clusters is, gets complicated, and that's where Kubernetes comes into play. 
Got it. You know, it's kind of interesting to me anyway. I hope it is to whoever's listening. But it reminds me as you're talking, I had the wonderful benefit of working at Apple and actually attended three different corporate briefings and they were level three. And, and that was really a big deal back in the heydays of Apple when Apple was up against IBM in the enterprise space. My customer was Arco. My point was we had Chris Espinoza, and anybody who's long in the software business knows this is a guy who's been a developer at Apple long, long ago. And he was in and he was talking about the trend. Now, at the time, Microsoft Word, I think, had just come out and it had everything in the kitchen sink in it, right? Thesaurus, glossaries, and the list goes on and on. And Chris was suggesting the future would be applets. And in fact, I think you see that future in today's handheld world uh, called apps on Apple, iOS, Android, right? But what you're talking about is taking that to the next level where you literally are creating these Lincoln logs of components that I can use and then automate that process it's really right. just unbelievable. Yeah, it, it's uh, yeah, it's like it's like uh, a building each Lego piece, and each Lego piece is a piece of co code that somebody, a team can own or an individual can own, and in order to make it into a puzzle or an application that actually functions, you need a bunch of these little Lego pieces put together, right? Yep. But the thing is that you can tear them apart just as easily as you can put them together. And the nice thing in the in the microservices Kubernetes world is that they dynamically get put together and and torn apart. And they, when they come back on, they, they know exactly where to go and where to fit. That's the, that's the beauty uh, of this world that we're living in. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a long, long, long way to go. I mean, there was a recent uh, number that I saw that, you know, one company that was collecting some stats on it has about one and a half billion containers running. So if you abstract that out, you know, you can think that's probably about two, two plus, two and a half billion uh, containers that me run that are running, uh, you know, on Kubernetes, uh, which is which is huge, and that's still a small fraction. That probably is only about, you know, 30, 35, or forty percent of the overall that could be could be running, and that's only those people that are basically wanting to do Kubernetes, and that percentage is still a very small percentage. So all these software applications, the old software applications, the old monoliths, they all eventually, or most of them, will probably get broken down into microservices. Probably it's you know, more than a five or 10 year journey. Mm, unbelievable. So one of the things, you know, I was talking to a guy and we were talking about the whole opportunity that the cloud represents, in particular what you're talking about, kind of empowering the developers and the teams to really have unprecedented capabilities at their fingertips. But one of the suggestions was there's also consequences like, you know, a, a simple error and the guys up on the mountain skiing could have significant consequences. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's always that's always the case. Uh, you know, uh, the the power has been shifting to developers more and more. And those teams are becoming more and more responsible for not only the running. Uh, it used to be like they used to drop the code, they get handed over to QA and then the QA handed it over to the operations guys. And each of them, you know, they used to have this sort of sequential 
workflow, what they call sort of the waterfall methodology. Yep. Now that's not the case anymore. You know, if, if you want to really deliver things fast, the teams are responsible for the quality of the code. And to me, this this notion about, well, that creates more of a problem is really not true because the reason it creates more of a problem is because you really had this big monolith. You had, if, if somebody were messing around with it, well, it could affect a whole bunch of other things. And so it was hard to solve the problem. If you actually broke it up into smaller uh, pieces, then your security threat envelope is actually lower yep. because now it's a small piece that you're working with, not a big piece, yep. right? And so, and, and you also have now distributed the security workload to all the different teams who own small pieces or each individual person that owns a small piece. So now that workload, instead of having a huge security team they actually, you know, you can distribute that workload among other people. But now the tools have to change, right? You have to integrate into the CI/CD process. You know, uh, you, you may have to run image scanning as part of that process. But the development teams and the individual developers can do that. And so that power is actually shifting more and more to the development teams, right? If, uh, and that that's a good thing because now if they deploy something and it breaks in production, they're the ones who are going to get paged. Exactly. And one of the things that I have talked about, you know, you talk about the shifting of the balance of power, you know, some of the tools that I know some companies have, have the ability to truly automate things. So, and my point is, uh, you know, sometimes a developer, if he or she isn't properly educated, he or she may be accustomed to leaving a port open or something. Uh, and so they'll automate that process of shutting that port if it is left open. And that too can shift the balance of power back into the security hands by forcing that developer to contact, you know, IT and say, hey, what happened? This port was open when I left the office today. Yeah, I mean, you know, that sort of balance of power is definitely uh, shifting more and more. Now what these companies do is they sort of set up policies and the policies sort of are automatically checked uh, in the deployment. So speak, right? Yeah, exactly. So those things are built in as part of the workflow so the developers know. Because the key is that you don't want to slow down. You know, you always have to balance uh, the uh, security risks with speed. Yep. Right. But then, you know, I think Adrian Cocroft uh, of, of uh, Netflix that, you know, speed wins in the marketplace. It can have severe operational impact if you're excessive in, in the world of security. I mean, it can have real consequences. Yeah, absolutely. You can slow things down quite a bit. The nice thing is that if you if you went back to the fundamental principles of building modern software as microservices, and if something goes wrong, let's say you ship something and something goes wrong, the traditional method was, okay, you know, it gets an incident report, it goes filed into support, the support has to go investigate things. But if you actually built the microservice and you determine the problem, the pro first of all, the problem scope is smaller. Yep. Uh, and second, you can just, you know, iterate on that and ship a next version the same day. Right. It's a beautiful thing about SaaS, too. I mean, just overall. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Having that in SaaS is even better because the speed at which you can deliver things in SaaS is, is so much, uh, so much better. The headache of, you know, taking a SaaS infrastructure and trying to run it on prem is quite expensive. Now, there's some companies who want to do that. Obviously, there's policy reasons, there's uh, compliance reasons, you know, there's a lot of good reasons uh, to actually do that. But the majority of the world is, is moving to the cloud because all the cloud providers are patching up all the holes 
to enable all these big customers to move to the cloud. Like you have financial customers like Capital One that are running in the cloud, right? You have lots of financial companies that are running in the cloud. So so it's it's no longer a blocker for people to actually run their applications in the cloud because it's it, it's important. It's in, it's in the interest of AWS and the interest of Google. It's in the interest of uh, Microsoft to make sure that the applications are inherently or the infrastructure is inherently secure. No uh, question. So people can run. And and they clearly, they being the public cloud providers, they clearly understand there's lots of confusion, lots of misunderstanding. The whole shared responsibility model is not clearly understood. I kind of make it simple in and of. But you can see them taking some significant steps to improve and reduce the concern, right? Try to remove as much risk. And I always say, and I think you'll agree, the cloud providers build a data center that is so vastly better than what any of us can build. It isn't even funny. And so don't be losing any sleep about whether or not that infrastructure is secure. You need to worry about making sure you understand they're building an environment that can accommodate Fortune 1 to Fortune 1 million. And there's lots of things that you don't understand about the environment. And I think that's where a lot of people really get into trouble. Yeah, they, and they try to sort of understand sometimes too much. There's too much to understand, too much to know. At some point, you know, yes, there's always a question of, you know, how much do you trust a particular provider, right? And that's where sort of the, the multi-cloud or the hybrid cloud approach comes into play. Like, you know, I want to hedge my bets. Right. So maybe I, I go with AWS uh, only to find out, oh, my AWS bill is, is you know, a quarter million dollars a month. <laughs> and and so now I've got to decide, oh, should I switch to, you know, Google? But I don't know whether I should switch to Google or not, right? Because I don't know what my bill at Google would be. Yep. Uh, so so people don't bother sometimes to do that. So there is this sort of whole notion about trying to understand what each of these cloud providers do. And they all basically provide the same set of services and they basically have the same cost structure. You know, it's like, okay, I've I, I charge so much for CPU, I charge so much for memory, I charge so much for ingress, I charge so much for egress. There are variabilities in there. There's no apples to apples comparison that you can do. Like if my workload runs on AWS, I can't compare that to the workload running on that same workload running on GKE or that same workload running on EKS. And that's where the big problems are, right? I think forgetting that uh, underneath, like, okay, all of these people can actually support running your Kubernetes workloads they all are gonna have compute resources that are infinitely scalable across multiple regions. They all are gonna you know, take care of the infrastructure security problems because it's in their best interest to get more and more and more workloads running in their environment. That, that's going to be a given. Yep. So the question for the customers and the users is that, okay, which one should I choose and how should I decide which one should I choose? Am I paying the right things for, for what I want to run? Is the bill that I pay to Google and the bill that I pay to Amazon, is that the right price for what my performance of my workload is? Like those are the, those are the types of questions that are going to come up in, in the very near future. Yep. I think you're spot on. And in fact, I think most everyone always is talking about uh, Amazon, Microsoft and Google. But I, I always say they're all trying to summit the same mountain but they're taking different paths. There are differences within their environment and they are not all equal in terms of the APIs that they 
published and made available, right? So I tell people it, it can be lumpy because, for example, and, and you, I'm sure, understand this far better than I, Neil, but Microsoft has Office 365. Microsoft has Active Directory. Active Directory plays a, an important role for Microsoft in their whole identity architecture and strategy where Amazon doesn't have that. So yeah, they, right. they, they have different offerings, but I think you're right. It's difficult to determine, and I think it's a cautionary uh, note. Customers should peel the onion and make sure they, they understand this part of the equation, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I mean, they do it if they, if they, if they want to use those services, right? I mean, if like, let's take something that are common, like both Amazon and Google and Microsoft, they all offer you know, databases as a service, right? So it's easily, it's easily transferable. If I want to use AWS's database as a service and I want to switch, if my application is written properly, then I can easily switch it out and use Google's or yep. I can switch it out and use Microsoft's, right? So, and the nice thing is that in the Kubernetes world, those things are perfectly abstracted. I, mm. I don't have to worry about it because each of them has a Kubernetes managed service offering and they work pretty much the same way. You know, they, they you don't have to worry about moving your Kubernetes workloads from AWS to Google uh, to Microsoft. The, the challenges come in is that all of these cloud providers do make money, like the Active Directory as a service from Microsoft, that's very specific to Microsoft. They can offer that, right? And they they come from the on-prem world where the uh, Active Directory services are running on-prem. So it's a good way for them to help people transition over into the cloud. And that's that's why, you know, they are, they are also sort of the second uh, popular cloud provider behind behind uh, Amazon. There's right? no question. Yeah, I think there's no question. There's, there's no question a Trojan horse for them. And they were very good about how they leveraged it and, you know, Kudos to Satya. Yeah, yeah Satya. Yeah, Satya he's Nadella. Brilliant. Yeah, he's yeah, exactly. He's, been, he's done an amazing job oh. of, of uh, turning uh, Microsoft around to make them a powerhouse in, in the in the cloud. And I think that's awesome to watch. Steve Ballmer as a parting gift. Let me go buy Nokia. <laughs> right? I mean, just like the most kooky thing ever. And, you know, he was so spot on uh, uh, when he came in and he recognized the cloud, the push uh, with Azure. I mean, they've played that very, very well. And anybody, which was virtually everybody, using Office 365 and they're thinking about the cloud, it's like the simplest, easiest way to flip the switch, right? I mean, yeah. and so it, it, they've been very, very smart about that. Yeah, they have. And I think they've leveraged, they leveraged their, uh, you know, uh, install base really, really well to, to get them to move over to the cloud. And that's that's good to see. I think more and more people will be moving over to the cloud. I think that pace of change, the pace of moving to the cloud will accelerate. Uh, and, and things like Kubernetes makes that easier, more palatable for people to actually move. Things like moving, you know, now well-established software development practices or building microservices containers will accelerate uh, that move. I think the hardest challenges for most companies are going to be organizational. They're not going to be technology-driven. They're yeah. actually very, very much organizational-driven. So that leads me to a question. As the expert that can help people understand this new abstraction option, 
you know, what key things would you advocate people uh, understand, look into, investigate, watch out for? I mean, what what you know, most important things people should kind of keep an eye out for and 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 understand before they make that leap into using Kubernetes. But before you answer, I'm going to have to pay the bills, so hang on a second. How well are you protected in the cloud? How fast do you move when the cloud moves at the speed of DevOps? And do you have the confidence you see everything you need to see, good or bad? Checkpoint Software. Cloud with confidence. See it. Control it. Secure it. Okay, we're back. Bills are paid. So, Neil... How would you answer that? What what should I be most concerned about if I'm I'm interested in in getting into using Kubernetes? Well, the first thing I would say that be don't concerned about it at all. I mean the 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 base tech is mature enough, uh, you know, so just just use it. And if you are you know as a as a small in a small company, like if you're in one of the Fortune one million, uh, you know, small and mid sized companies. All the base technology is now available. You can use a lot of it is available through open source. So nothing, nothing should prevent you from trying it out. The only thing that I would be concerned about trying things out is to make sure that you have a team structure. You have an organizational structure that allows you to move at speed. That is the big thing that I would worry about more than anything else. Elaborate on that. Elaborate when you say that you have an organizational structure that can move at speed. What do you mean? That means that don't get hung up on on uh, dependencies. Like make sure that each team and each developer can be independently productive. Uh, they can use whatever language they want. Right? They don't have to do a specific type of language. They can, you know, they can write one service in Go. They can write a different service in Python. They can write another service in Java. Uh, and they can use containers. Just the key underpinning, the key packaging tool is to use a container to package them up in and keep the services independent from each other and build. build. The, the most important thing is to have a modern way to build and develop and deploy your software. Got it. You know, one of the other benefits, it seems, I'm hearing a lot about uh, zero trust, and I'm, I'm hearing a lot about uh, the perimeter is dead, long live the perimeter, and specifically referring to putting a perimeter around those individual microservices. And that's also a benefit, right? As you develop these small, focused microservices, you also can control them with uh, much more granularity. Yes, you can. And they become easier to control with much more granularity. They reduce the uh, the risk factor because there are smaller things that get affected and not the whole application that gets affected. Only a very small piece of it gets affected right. if something goes wrong. Because people are human, right? I mean, humans will make mistakes. Yeah, it's exactly. not a perfect world. So what you want to do is have an architecture that allows for that um, failures that can happen by humans, but also because you're building services that are resilient in nature. I was on a panel at this event on Wednesday, and one of the things we were talking about is users and user education. And and when I got the microphone, I, I asked, how many of you have purchased a new vehicle in the last two or three years? And along with it, got an advanced defensive driving class, right? Nobody. But the car you bought can stop for you, can keep you from changing lanes at the wrong time. And so my point is, 
despite us hoping and wanting to have users that are errorless, we need to take a page from the auto developers and just continue to protect our users from themselves more intelligently. And I think containers and Kubernetes and uh, add water and shake architectures are really helping make that a possibility. Yeah, I think it's it's uh, all the, the world we're moving to is, is just going to make that better and better. Uh, you know, it, it, it's getting to be a much more complex world, but the tools are evolving to get to that world, to help with that world in a much more granular way. Well, I think it goes back to your earlier comment about the fluidity and how how early we are in this journey and how it's changing at such an incredibly rapid pace. Yeah, I think that's that's the key. It's moving very, very fast. Companies are coming and going. Lots of new startups in this world. Uh, lots of people trying to solve lots of problems in, in the Kubernetes world. There's lots of problems in the Kubernetes world. Even though it's relatively mature, uh, Kubernetes is still like 1.18 or 1.19. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. so, you know, so, you know, if you think about it, and then, you know, Prometheus just turned 2.0, so it's just two years, you know, just two versions old. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, Istio is still like, you know, I don't know, barely 1.x, uh, you know, barely 1.0. Yeah. Uh, lots of problems there, but all of that base tech is, you know, open source based. It's all available. You can build businesses on it. Uh, you know, it's it's all there. Yeah, that's extraordinary. You know, it's so exciting. One of the things that I've said many times, Neil, and I feel so fortunate that I went to work for a guy in my young early twenties, and he went out and bought an Apple II Plus, and then. I got into the business. I was so glad. But what's exciting today is really it doesn't matter when you get into this business. You're getting in at the beginning of something. And uh, this is really something that's taking off. Cloud, containers, Kubernetes. It's pretty awesome stuff. It's exciting. Yeah, it is great. It's great to be in this space. Neil, thank you so very much. It was really enlightening, and I learned a lot from talking with you. I really appreciate you taking the time with me today. Thanks for coming on Talking Cloud. Thanks, Grant. It was a pleasure to talk with you today. We'll have you back, I promise. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for subscribing, listening, liking, sharing. I hope you found this time well spent, and I hope that we'll hear you back again soon on another episode of Talking Cloud. Thanks very much. Yeah.